Hello, this is Derek Duncan. This is the Feed the Ball podcast, episode 85 with my guest, Phil Smith. One of my regrets as host of Feed the Ball was that I was never able to get Tom Weisskopf to come on the show. I reached out to his office sometime in 2019, as I remember it, and invited him to come on. The woman who I corresponded with seemed to express his interest in talking, but soon thereafter the line went cold, and for whatever reason, I never got him. I wish it were different, because from everything I know of Weisskopf, he was a vastly interesting and complex man, with so much to share regarding professional golf, playing against the world's best players, and designing golf courses all over the globe. It's been just a little over a year since Weisskopf lost his battle with cancer, and we're left to learn what remains to be known about him and his thoughts on architecture from others. One of the people who can speak as thoroughly as anyone about Weisskopf, especially regarding his ideas on golf course design, is Phil Smith. Smith was Weisskopf's right-hand man for nearly 25 years, helping him design and build courses after Weisskopf and his original partner, Jay Morish, went their separate ways in the late 1990s. Smith began his career working for Jack Nicholas in Asia and later in Arizona before he joined with Weisskopf, and you'll hear how the two formed their partnership. Among the many things we discuss is the certain look and playability of Weisskopf and Smith-designed courses, especially the shaping of the bunkers and overall aesthetics. Smith explains where that aesthetic came from and why, as well as the joy of working on some truly sensational sites from Arizona to Hawaii to northern Idaho and far beyond. The last project they were involved with together is Black Desert Resort in southern Utah that opened this summer. It's a jaw-dropping, beautiful golf course that was heavily engineered through a landscape of black lava rock that needed to be blasted out of the ground. Smith is responsible for bringing that project through construction and completion, and the work is a remarkable accomplishment, the contrast of green golf and black stone making for a most rugged and unique presentation, a perfect coda to the Weisskopf anthology. In a recent podcast episode with Don Plasek from Renaissance Golf Design, the firm Tom Doak established, I mused that Renaissance might endure indefinitely because the company is based on an idea of how to build golf courses and not on the name or celebrity of a particular individual. That question of legacy comes up in this talk as well. Weisskopf was a popular architect because he was Tom Weisskopf. Indeed, the quality and beauty of his courses he was involved in designing speaks for itself, but there's no question his status as one of the sport's great competitors and real gentlemen drove the business and made clients want to work with him. Where does that go now? The answer remains to be seen, but I can tell you that Phil Smith continues to be busy, and it's important to understand that when you look at and play any of the remarkable Weisskopf courses built this century, you're playing in large part a Phil Smith course as well. This is particularly true of Black Desert. This was a wonderful discussion with Phil and a wonderful remembrance of Tom Weisskopf, the man and the designer. I think you'll enjoy it. Here's Phil Smith talking about his time with one of the game's greats. Well, I, it strikes me that now is a good time for you and I to have a, a conversation. I think it's just been a, a just a little over a year ago since Tom Weisskopf passed away. Um, yeah. So uh, it's appropriate that that we have a conversation. We'll talk about your collaboration together and and what you're working on. But we also want to kind of remember remember, remember Tom. But before we get yeah. into that, uh, I, I would like to know more about your background and and how you got into golf design. You said you're from Kansas initially. What were your first steps? 
toward this profession and, and why, why golf course design and construction? Well, my first step started in Hutchinson, Kansas, which is where Prairie Dunes is. Yeah. And Prairie Dunes, for those people that don't know, is, you know, traditionally top 20 in the world type rated golf course. And it's a beautiful place. And I think it taught me, I was on the maintenance crew there for six years in high school and then uh, college. It was a great summer job. And, uh, it taught me how golf should kind of lay into the land. There was an old, um, believe it or not, there was an ocean bed that laid throughout the Midwest. And that's what created all those, you know, sand hills type things in Nebraska and all the way there's a belt through Kansas. And that's what created that, uh, that beautiful sort of terrain that, that lends itself toward golf. And so it was such a, such a great introduction for me as a kid to see that and see how golf lays into the land and see that Perry Maxwell design. Uh, it was, it was pretty cool. So it kind of got my juices flowing. Um, I started off in civil engineering and then a, about a year into differential equations, I realized I was a little <laughs> bit more artistic than, uh, uh, you know, I was good at math, but I didn't love that part of it. So it just started to add up that um, I love the artistic way that that golf laid into the land and so i went to kansas state and majored in landscape architecture and then i took a job in florida with a land planning company called ed stone and associates edsa and uh, because i took a job in florida because i knew there were a lot of architects down in florida and i got really lucky with the timing because if you remember the early 90s was crazy in the golf industry and there was a lot going on and so I heard Nicholas was hiring and I went down and interviewed with uh, Tommy Sasser and Jack and, and a guy named Ed Etchells and uh, got lucky. And they, they hired me. And within nine months I was in Hong Kong working with guys like Chris Cochran and Lee Shifty to Hong Kong and, right away. <laughs> yeah, right away. <laughs> so, but we here's were doing young, like, 30... here's some young kid will do anything we ask him to do. <laughs> exactly. I was a draftsman back then. So it was like chiseling on granite, right? Back in the day before we had computers. So I was doing all their drafting and, and Chris and Lee, you know, they were, they were golf course superintendent backgrounds. So they really didn't draw, you know, that much. So it was a good, good collaboration to help them learn how to draw. And then for them to teach me the strategy and how to lay out golf courses. So it was a great introduction. We have 30 projects in, in that Asian region at the time. So we had a lot going on. So it was a lot of fun. And, and, um, we spent two years over there and then moved to Malaysia for a year before coming back. And then after that, Jack stationed me here in Arizona to, to work with Lyle Anderson on the desert mountain projects. Uh, I did the Apache course and the Chiricahua course and, superstition mountain uh, so i was handling the western region which was arizona california and hawaii for nicholas it's and, just uh, it blows my mind to contemplate a of design firm having 30 active projects just in just in one continent much less what they had going on everywhere else in the world at that time i know and think about this at one time we had 25 design associates that's what i was just going to ask you how many were the 25 yeah. It was crazy. I mean, there was there was just so much going on, and and uh, you know that was such a just a vibrant firm to work with, and uh, it was interesting because um, things were really humming, and it got in toward the late '90s, and uh, I was still out here in Arizona, and I got this call out of the blue from a woman who was a secretary that said I have Tom Weisskopf on the line, 
And I thought, because I'd been out here a while and I'd admired Tom's work with Jay, you know, Troon Country Club, Troon North, um, you know, TPC Scottsdale, you know, and, and Shadow Glen in Kansas. I, you know, I grew up, um, you know, seeing some of Tom's work and really admired his work. So when I got this call, it was, I thought it was one of my buddies playing a joke on me. So, you know, I sort of didn't take it seriously. And then, then I heard that voice. And I knew right away that was that was Tom. So he just cold called me. He and Tom, he and Jay had just uh, just split, and he was looking for a guy to sort of take that role, you know, and 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 work with him in the future. And so it was just one of those opportunities that I couldn't pass up. And I believe me, I loved working with Jack and working with that organization. But it was such a big machine, you know, and mm-hmm. to work with Tom one on one on one was an opportunity that I just couldn't pass up. And so. Um, yeah, and for listeners who who may not be familiar, Tom worked with Jay Morish for years. He got into the business in the '80s with Jay Morish, and Jay Morish was more on the the technical and construction side of the business. Obviously, Tom, being a former tour player, brought his strategic and artistic ideas to it. But you need somebody to be able to produce the golf course, and that's what Jay did for Jack Nicholas prior uh, prior to you know probably I don't know I guess prior to you joining Nicholas yeah. Design, but going back into the 70s, Jay Morris was on Nicholas Design's staff. Yeah, and basically it was he and, and a guy named Bob Cup yep. who were at the beginnings of Jack's career. So it was a really easy segue for me because as far as setup and design and all those different principles that you know Jay had worked with Jack on and then worked with Weisskopf, it was a very easy segue for me to come in and take over that role. And so um, we just hit it off right away. And, you know, it just, it just kind of started. We, our first project was in the Bahamas at the ocean club. And uh, you know, from that point on, we just took off and it was kind of like traveling the world with my best friend at that point, you know, we had a blast and you know, what a dream career to have to be able to work with a guy like Tom for it's been 24 years now. Yeah, so that, that, this would have been around 1999 that you yeah 1999 you got that phone call. <laughs> yeah, what a phone call yeah. to get. I mean, it was um, a great phone call. I tell you what, though, um, it wasn't easy talking to Jack about <laughs> making the change, you know. But Jack was so gracious. You know, he flew me back to Florida. We sat down, and he just said, "Hey, this sounds like something you really want to do." And you know, um, of course, he you know, he wasn't real happy with Tom for (laughs) taking me away, but, um, he was so gracious and he said, Hey, give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, come on back. You know? So what a great thing for Jack to say. And, uh, Jack has always been the most gracious man ever, you know, especially with his fans. And, and so, like I say, it was a tough decision, but I, I never looked back after that. Well, just to set it up as we get into talking about your time with, with Tom Weisskopf, what, what was the, it like working for Nicholas design. You, we talked about it, you know, it's, it's a massive organization with, you know, the head and 25 tentacles and then tentacles going out from there. And mm-hmm. a typical, um, maybe just, especially since Asia is so far away. And I, I imagine that, that Nicholas didn't get out that way too often, but when you were in Arizona, how often would Jack come and, and to visit a site and, and what would those interactions be like? Well, my experience was unique because I was lucky enough to work with uh, Lyle Anderson. And so Jack and Lyle were good friends. And so that collaboration was always very live and active. And, you know, the trick with Jack was always getting his attention and getting uh, what we needed as architects 
so that we could move forward in the construction process and get the approvals. And sometimes that was a bit of a challenge just because he was so busy. Um, you know, when I first started working with him, he was still playing on the senior tour. And, you know, his attention was divided between that and a whole bunch of different things with Golden, Golden Bear International. Sorry about the dog. It's and okay. um, so, you know, that was always a little bit of a challenge just to get, get him out there. But I always um, – when he was on site, he was always very engaged. And, you know, I think that's what made Jack and, and Weisskopf both so great in what they did is their their, their ability to recall so many different, you know, as player architects, remembering the times that they played different golf courses and different holes during their career and being able to recall those shots and, and, and the visions that they saw when they were playing golf and competitive golf and to sort of translate that into their designs and not necessarily copying holes, but copying those type of situations, you know, and, um, you know, their ability to do that recall was just off the charts. And so, um, but circling back, you know, Jack was, um, you know, pretty intense guy, but we all understood that and, and, uh, you know, really respected, you know, all of his input and, you know, we had a lot of fun doing that. But, you know, the reason I made the change was because instead of being one of 25, I was one of one. And so that's that's the, really the only reason that I decided to, you know, take a little bit of a different, you know, journey in my career. Uh, there's a, a, a saying, uh, my, my predecessor, Ron Witten, told me this, that he spoke to Weisskopf and knew Weisskopf, you know, fairly well over the years. But Tom said that when he was a, professional player traveling around his job was to dissect the golf course and figure out the best way to put a score on the board but that that made him have blinders on to what was happening with the, the nuances and and uh maybe the the aesthetics of the golf course and everything so he said he played around the world but doesn't remember anything about any of the golf courses or didn't remember anything i'm, I'm sure that's apocryphal in some sense but you know it's, it strikes me it strikes me that that tom made a, a transition from that mentality as a player and a highly accomplished player to uh, an architect with a broad ability to design on a variety of sites and, and to a variety of, of clientele, maybe more effectively from a playability standpoint than somebody like Jack Nicholas did that, that journey for, with Nicholas to get into a, a place with his design firm where uh, an 18 handicap can go out and, and have a good time on his golf courses took a lot longer than it did. I think Tom Weisskopf is, did, did you have conversations with Tom about that or does that jive with, with what you know of his outlook on getting into the design profession? All the time. I mean, Tom always brought up the point that, you know, 94% of golfers can't break 90. And so, you know, his point was it's a hard game to start with. And, you know, in order to keep people interested in the game, we have to make sure it's playable. And so, you know, you look at TPC Scottsdale, which is a great example of, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time that golf course needs to be playable for the average guy. It's a resort, you know, it's a, it's a municipal golf course here in Scottsdale. And then that 1% of the time, it's got to challenge the best players in the world. And so we tried to do that on every design. Uh, Tom always was looking for, and asking me for my opinion, because I'm, you know, I'm a 12 to 15, sometimes 18 handicap, you know, 
And I'd, sometimes I would have to remind him, well, Tom, I see how you can play this hole, but how do I play this hole? You know, and so we, we sort of had that sort of banter between the two of us. And Tom was great about um, also wanting to hear everybody's thoughts and ideas. Um, he would ultimately make the, you know, the final design decision, but he wanted to hear everybody's input so that he could make an informed decision on, you know, certain design aspects of, of golf holes. And um, so that, that was also a great you know, quality that Tom had is, is listening and listening to his clients, especially, um, and thinking, you know, about what is, who is the user of the golf course? You know, is it a, is it a high end daily fee course or is it a private course? You know, there's, there are design aspects that we do differently for each. And so that part of it, um, was, was great. And it was great for me as an architect because what I need to do my work is um, for someone to be decisive. And Tom was very decisive when it came to making decisions about design. Um, there wasn't a lot of waffling back and forth. He knew what he wanted and we moved forward with that. And so it was very, uh, it made my job a lot easier. Just to kind of follow up on that thought, in my experience and my observations, I think the I think the last people that you'd want to go to 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 get input on 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 the game we play the the golf course the setup the rules are professional golfers. I mean their their viewpoint is just so specific and narrow and they just don't often don't have the experience or the outlook to consider a broad range of of environments or players and so their their focus tends to be, you know, very linear and and, and not very in that respect valuable in in my opinion um but you know it, it is interesting that and that that tom was able to kind of let that that go and and create golf courses that are that are very playable uh for everyone else did you did you sense and you may not know this but did you sense that it that it was he had to undergo a transformation maybe it was with, with jay morish over the years but that that letting go of that tour mentality the difficulty of that do you have a sense I think so. I think there was a good disconnect by the time I had gotten there. You know, he was still playing on the senior tour a little bit, but Tom, his famous quote was, you know, I was really controversial as a player and I'd really rather not be controversial as an architect. Mm -hmm. And so I think if anything, he almost erred on the side of being too cautious sometimes. Um, but I just love the way that he was able to visualize and, and work with perception you know, in, in his bunker placement and work with um, setting up things that sort of tricked the eye a little bit, but actually made the golf hole a little more playable. You know, a lot of times Nicholas would, you know, put the bunker right up against the green in most cases where you're either in the bunker or you're on the green. Whereas Tom would pull those features back a little bit and sort of put a little flash there so that when you're standing in the fairway, your eye can't tell if it's right up there or if there's a little bit of a gap there. And, and as you play the hole, you, you, you realize, you know, Oh, I might not have had a great shot, but it did clear the bunker and it actually bounced onto the green. And so we would create a lot of contouring and a lot of flow that if you wanted to play the ball and throw darts at the greens, you could, or if you want to play the ground game, you could. So we tried to think about both aspects of design and we, you know, always incorporating the wind and, and everything else into every thought and shot value that we could for all of our designs. Mm -hmm. In the last podcast I did, I, I asked this question and 
for for some reason it's just it's on my mind and um it's some it's so simple and yet there's something kind of profound about it do you have a sense after doing this for so many years what golfers like that's a great question i you know i don't equate super difficult architecture as being great architecture but there are some players that do and so um there are there are some people out there that feel like if a, if a golf course is just super intense and every shot is you know really difficult that it equates to great design to me it you know great design just reward it's simple it the, the strategy should reward good shots we're not out there to try to penalize good shots so yeah if you hit a bad shot you're going to be penalized but really for us and for what i've learned throughout my career is um, and especially in resort play. So if it's resort golf, you want to make sure all your hazards and all of your strategy is visible off the tees. You want to make sure that it's fairly clear how you want to play the golf hole so that you make an informed decision off the tee what you want to do. Same thing for your approach shots. If you've placed the ball where you wanted to, you know, your approach shot should speak to you and tell you, you know, this is how I want to try to attack the pin or this is what I want to try to do today for that, for that particular thing. So you know, the, the average golfer that's out there, again, I think there's just a, a wide variety of what they perceive as good design and what actually is good design. So it's a little bit tricky to find that, you know, that sweet spot in there. Yeah, it, it, it's like the average golfer might think they that they want to play a course that's challenging and it has all the bona fides and, uh, and a high ranking and a high high rating and a high slope because they perceive that to be better. But they don't really like playing those golf courses and yeah it, and that's i mean that that's a that's a, a thing that that's happening that it's happened or a mentality that's happened for for decades maybe since the beginning of golf for it's possible and and now there's a little bit more of a transition and a softening of that view there are a lot of players younger players people coming into the game that have no use for that championship golf course mentality you know, they, they actually want something that is more accommodating to them. So do you sense, mm-hmm. do you sense in, in, in your interactions with golfers and clients that, that there is a shift toward this idea that it doesn't have to be uh, a high, high rating and high slope and difficulty as a, as a badge of honor? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, people want to have fun. And, you know, if you're out there shooting a big score, it's not going to be as much fun as if you, um, you know, are, are playing well. Um Another thing that we try to do in our designs and with my designs is try to, you know, in the finish of the golf course, try to finish with some holes that we kind of describe as half pars, you know, maybe some reachable par fours, maybe some reachable par fives so that, you know, you can have some confidence at the end of the day, you know, when you're getting tired, you know, let's, let's give the player a chance to make some birdies. You know, you could make a big number, but you could make some birdies toward the end of the day. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, again, we're not trying to beat people up. We just, we want them to have fun and enjoy the property, enjoy the site. Uh, you know, that's really what golf is about is that marriage between an athletic field that is completely, um, unlike anything else where you don't have a, a square rectangle that you're playing in, you know, it's different in every occasion. So we're just trying to marry, you know, kind of what God gave us and what, what the strategy of the game can give us and, and put those two together. And, and it really comes down to making sure that it doesn't hurt your eye, that it's very pleasant to look at. And, and um, 
you know, we've been fortunate or I've been fortunate to um, work on some amazing properties with amazing views. And to me, the, the, the key to working on sites like that is to make sure that your eye is equally entertained by what's in the background and what's in the foreground. So if the golf course sort of takes your eye away from that, we've failed as architects. You know, we want to make sure that we balance that. It's a 50-50 thing. You know, we want you to enjoy the scenery and we want you to enjoy the game at the same time. So it's a it's a unique balance can, as architect. Can design tip too much in favor of making a golf course uh, aesthetically pleasing or playable versus just getting the, the best golf course out of the land that you're presented, even if even if in some cases that happens to be uh, a, a product that is a little more demanding? I guess I, I the other so. way to look I at think... that is like, can you can you overplay that that tendency to to try to make your golf course appeal to too many people? I think so. I think it starts with the routing. You know, we got to make sure that the holes are fit into the landscape the way they should fit into the landscape. And sometimes with certain clients, that can be a challenge where we're not given the proper land or maybe a land planner has come in before us that doesn't quite understand golf. And they're like, well, here's your golf course corridor. Now build it. You know, so those are always a big challenge to make those playable. And you always end up moving way too much dirt and doing things that don't quite feel right or, or hurt your eyes. So, um, yeah, again, it's, you know, it's, it's a tricky balance, you know, golf course design is such a great combination of civil engineering and art. You know, it's, it's, it's a great combination of the two, because as you know, golf courses are used to carry water as well. And, and that's the main reason that golf course developments took off so much because you have so much land that's going to be floodplain anyway. And we have to create a vehicle to carry that water. And it usually ends up being, you know, all throughout the lows and, and, uh, the flows of the way that the land lays. So it's, um, it creates this unique environment for us to start thinking about those strategic elements. Rod Witten described Weisskopf courses as crisp and clean and timeless. On one hand, that's, if you're going to be, you know, pigeonholed into, into six words or whatever, it's not a bad, that's not a bad one to be, but does that jive with, with, uh, how you perceive your work with Tom or does that leave anything so. out I on think, the table that maybe is uh, uh, something that you were never able to quite get to in your time together uh, that might have been something different than that, uh, that conception of your product? Oh, yeah. Crisp and clean is a great, great description. Um, you know, the, the Weisskopf bunker is a beautiful, you know, long flowing bunker line that is very clean. Uh, we did a few golf courses, you know, Snake River is a great example where we started doing the more naturalistic bunker style. And Tom wanted to get more into that. I think with just about every client that we had, he tried to talk them into doing the um, stack sod, sod wall bunkers. Oh, he did. We wanted to do that somewhere. Why? Just and, to... uh, yeah. And nobody let us do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it takes, because, a, it... you know, after three or four years, you have to end up rebuilding. Yeah. You'd have to have the right property to make that exactly. look work. So, um, I'm doing a course, a part three course in Spanish Peaks right now, which is called Tom's 10, which um, is a 10 hole part three course. And finally, I'm putting in a stacked sod bunker just in honor of the fact that we tried to do it in so <laughs> many places. <laughs> yeah. But it's pretty cool. Well, that's interesting that you that you actually call it the Weisskopf bunker. 
Um, you know, if you just look at the, the courses that, that he's built and, and that you've built, there is definitely a, a, a similarity in the, in the style of bunkering. I, I call it the, the Grand Prix style of bunkering. You know, if you imagine a, a Grand Prix racetrack, you know, you have some, mm-hmm. some long bends and then some, some quick turns and then a long bend. And they lay on the ground really nice and it's a little bit flash, flashed up. Um, did, is, that what, is that what just clients got to the point with, that they expected that from you guys? I think so. I think, you know, we, we try to, you know, what the most important thing with bunkering is scale. So whenever we do a project, you think about Kukuyula, which is in Kauai, mm-hmm. we have this big, vast, you know, side of a mountain that plays off into the ocean with not a lot of trees. So the scale of the bunkers there are very large and, th- and there we could do a lot more line work, you know, whereas Tom and I did a lot of courses in the mountains where you're completely surrounded by trees and you've got, you know, each hole is sort of its own, you know, in its own little compartment. And so there you can go a little smaller with scale, but in most instances, we want it to flash sand. We want to see that sand. We want to see that contrast of the green and the white. And so that's why we did a lot of that flashing. And and luckily more recently uh, with the new bunker lining systems, we're able to flash sand and and keep that integrity uh, of the, the sand longer so that it doesn't contaminate, you know, and have problems and wash out. But um, we love that sort of wave feel in the faces so that you could really get a nice visual into those bunkers. How did he arrive at that style? Do you have any idea? I mean, I, I, th- I think it goes back to prior to your time working with him, but. It does. Yeah. He, he fell in love with sort of that turn of the century bunker style. You think about the Olympic club or some of those places where it's what we call, he called it antiquing where over time the, the sand is thrown up on the faces and builds up and you get those big buildups of sand that, you know, those can build up two or three feet over time, people just throwing sand out of the bunker. Mm-hmm. And so we tried to build that antiquing into them from the start. And so that was sort of, where he got that, you know, that thought and, and just love that look. And so that's where that came from. Yeah. I guess if you look at it that way, it's a little bit like, like a Tillinghast shaped bunkers on some of, some of the Tillinghast courses, of course he bunkered courses different everywhere he went, but that, that Mm -hmm. you can connect that back to him. I guess the difference is, is that cleanliness, that, that, that pure top edge, which, you know, you have to maintain it that way. And you wouldn't let that go, go natural. That could be, that could be an eighties, you know, you know, fascination with, with Augusta national right. or that, that kind of highly maintained look that you associate with, uh, you know, something expensive. Yeah. And we, we still did a little bit more of a curl over the top of turf. Uh, whereas Augusta edges all the way to the top. Mm-hmm. So we have a little bit more of a curl and try to try to get the green part of what's above the sand to not always be the same dimension. So you're thick to thin on your, you know, your top line would change throughout that, that line. And I obsess over bunker lines. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time painting bunker lines and, and uh, it's funny because as an architect, you're painting the line and you're standing back and you make all these adjustments. And then as a player, you come back and play the course, you see it completely differently. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, maybe I'm the only one that even notices that, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but we spend a lot of time and effort on it regardless. I bet. (laughs) One of the things that that uh, separates Tom from you know the majority of, of architects is he was able to attract um, a really unique and, and high caliber client. I would imagine you can correct me, but 
he probably didn't interview for too many jobs that somebody would want to work with him and, and call him. He's Tom Weisskopf. Um, mm-hmm. Is that the case? Did, did clients sort of reach out to Tom to work or did, did you ever have to go in and, and try to bid on a job? I can only think of maybe one or two that we were in a competition with somebody on. You're exactly right. It was, it was a very um, unique situation where, um, you know, I think his reputation sort of preceded him and, you know, we were very lucky to have, a great group of clients that we worked with um, some of them on many projects, groups like DMV, you know, and, and uh, Bartlett and those, those guys where we did several projects together. Um, and then, um, you know, I can't think of one project that didn't pay, you know, that we always had good clients that, you know, were wanted quality. They wanted, uh, they were very timely with their, you know, with, with our, fee payments and never really had any issues with that. And, uh, so we were very lucky in that, from that perspective, um, to be able to work with people like that. And, and that's when you get the best product because they, they all seem to put their trust in what, you know, we were hoping to give them and, and, um, and that goes a long way because that can, you know, that's, that can really ruin a project when people try to, you know, force things in and, and, and they just don't work. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between a client being attracted to an architect, a name brand architect like Tom Weisskopf for the return on investment, uh, what they represent from a marketing perspective, from yeah. a home sale perspective, whatever, and also versus being attracted to that person for their product, for the golf course and, and the way they see golf and the way they, they lay it out and design it. Do you, What do you think clients saw first and foremost in their associations with Tom? Well, I think a very um, personable personality. I don't know how else to put it. Tom was, if you watched Tom play golf back in the seventies, you'd kind of be like, I'm not sure, so sure I'd want to hang out with that guy. Yeah, he has a reputation. He was very aloof rep- by reputation. Yeah, he was. And, and, you know, I got, I have to say he probably didn't enjoy competitive golf as much as he probably wished he did. But um, looking back on it, you know, I think he regretted that, but as an architect, I mean, the guy just loved every second of what we did. I got calls at one in the morning from Tom. I just had an idea, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think what clients saw in Tom was a person that, uh, was so eloquent in the way he spoke and the way he told stories and the way he interacted with their prospective clients and their prospective members, you know, the way that he did grand openings and, you know, got mic'd up and walked every hole and talked about every detail, you know, and, and knew every detail of every golf hole. And so that goes a long way when people see that and see how that translates into member sales. Um, I think at one time Barron's did a, um, a study and Weisskopf courses were far and away, you know, had the most value as far as, and there were a few projects, of course, that, you know, askewed that, that number, you know, we did projects in Hawaii, we did projects in Italy, we did projects um, in some pretty high end areas like, like the Yellowstone club, you know, where um, yeah, they can command some pretty high prices for lots. But um, I think that speaks volumes for what the value Tom Weisskopf could bring to a project. When you would begin a job, so the client calls, you accept it, you have a piece of land. What's the process 
and the dynamic between Tom and yourself when you're getting started, how does the routing fall into place? So we get the topo map and Tom was very good at reading maps as well. So, um, you know, we spent, that was the most important part of any project or those first few weeks when we would go out and walk the sites and Tom would walk them with me. Um, and we'd try to just do it on our own if we could just the two of us, or we could sort of start sharing ideas and start sharing thoughts. And, you know, another great quality that Tom had, and I know Jack and, and a lot of those players have is being able to, um, their depth perception when you're out in the field, is so amazing and what they can feel as far as yardages are concerned. Mm. So as we walked sites and Tom would say, we got to, you know, we'll put a bunker over here and we'll do this and we'll do that. And then I would get back to the office and I'd start measuring things out. And he's, you know, he would have told me in the field, yeah, I'll put that bunker at three thirty, and it would be at three thirty one. You know, it's like, they just have that ability to be able to feel and sense yardages and so and and get the features to fit in and the and the strategy to fit into that landscape so again that routing process is the most important part you know and 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 we spent a lot of time in getting you know the par fours the longest par fours in opposite directions so that you know the wind uh you know, would, would be a factor for all of those long fours, you know, Tom loved his drivable par fours. And so we'd try to always route one or two of those. And if we had to, if we had two of them, we would put them in opposite directions and put them on separate nines, uh, par threes, you know, again, trying to get those in all different directions and wind varieties and things like that. And the par fives, you know, same thing. So we spent a lot of time on that. So that once we got into the design part of it, which Tom would, basically just take and you know i've got some he would just take just a manila sheet of paper from a, a legal pad mm -hmm. and just start doing these sort of sketches and that's what i would use to just lay into the topography and 99 percent of the time his sketches fit just right into that uh landform you know, and other times, you know, I would say, well, this isn't quite working. Let's try this. And again, I would get that instant feedback and we could just sit there and collaborate, you know, sometimes all day on certain designs. And so it was a very collaborative effort uh, when we got together to to work on these. And for me, that was a dream come true, you know, to be able to sit across from the man and have that kind of time to be able to to work these things out. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun, you know, and then it. At some point, you know, the, of course, the civil engineers are going to get involved and the owners and, you know, we're talking, you know, I'm a land planner as well. So I try to think about lots and, you know, roads and streets because that's a, that's an important component that has to all marry together with this. So um, we try to think ahead on a lot of those things as well. I mean, do you do you tie that back? Well, let, let, let me let me back up and say something, say this differently. It's interesting to me that so much of the wise cop and Smith golf course is this beautiful aesthetic. You mentioned it before, you know, it has to be something that, that, you know, is pleasant to look at. And that just seems, and maybe this is my narrow minded thinking that it just seems so uh, antithetic to uh, his entire background growing up playing golf and being mechanical and looking at very specific points and not seeing the, the broader picture. And yet he was so good at, you know, fitting features into the land, as you said, and being able to sketch it out and having it be almost right and have depth perception, seeing the entire field. I mean, it's just, he had this skill that, that it didn't 
it, it, it wasn't that that thing wasn't developed or it wasn't, it wasn't, he had it all the time. It wasn't realized or he wasn't using that art artistry until later in his, in his life. But it's something that you think that was just innate in him that maybe sets, puts him in a unique category versus some of his peers. I think so. I think I had this weird theory one time I was thinking about it and, you know, Tom is right-handed and I'm left-handed. So maybe it just ended up where we ended up utilizing the full brain, you know, where, <laughs> You know, the, the analytical half and the artistic half, which, again, it, you know, if, if golf course design really is a combination of civil engineering and architecture and art, you really do need to use that whole sort of, you know, brain almost, you know, to its fullest extent in order to be able to match all that together. And, and I saw Tom, you know, sort of you know, styles change and, and, you know, we tried to do some things a little differently every now and then, but yeah, he was just really good at visualizing. We were good at visualizing things together. So I think it was just a good match. Did you typically use the same uh, construction firms to build your courses? Yeah. And what I'm getting yeah. at is, is that, that, you know, the, the shaping that you've been talking about and the bunker shapes and the lines, I, I would imagine that it takes some, some, some practice and repetition to get those right for you and Tom and, is that something that you can put in a, in a blueprint or on a plan and hand it over to somebody to execute? Or does it take a lot of repetition from people who are familiar with your style and what you're looking for to get that correct? It, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think um, in our world, I don't think contractors and shapers get enough credit. I think, um, you know, we definitely had a short list of people that we like to work with, but we didn't mind using different people so that we could get a little different feel out there. But um, you're only as good as your a shaper and the people that you're working with. And I, you know, I, I almost think there should be a little asterisk next to every, uh, golf course, you know, and, and almost include some of those guys' names because they are so talented, those shapers and the ones that we've worked with through the years are just off the charts. Good. And they can take what we draw. You know, I'm pretty particular with my plans. I try to do a very accurate, um, set of plans, not only for, building it, but for pricing it so that clients can get a really good idea, you know, out of the gate, what this golf course is going to cost and what the quantities are going to be. So um, I take a lot of pride in, in doing that, and especially today's world where we're using GPS systems on bulldozers and machinery, where they're going to build exactly what you draw. That's exactly what's going to be presented to you in the field. And then the shapers can kind of take it from there. But with mass, mass excavation and those kind of things, the technology is to the point now where you better produce a pretty good set of plans. Unless you're Coor Crenshaw or somebody that's really just kind of out there, you know, just, you know, not needing to move a lot of dirt. They are getting the sites now that, you know, they don't have to move a lot of material. But um that's that's one of the big components that uh, you know I kind of pride myself in is is putting together a pretty good set of plans. The other thing that sets Tom and and your work apart from from so many of your contemporaries is just the the overall high quality of of the client and the sites. You mentioned earlier you had a chance to work on some amazing sites, but if you go through your portfolio, I mean it's really stunning. These are some of the most beautiful properties that have been developed for golf in in the last twenty five years. You know, you think of the Yellowstone Club. Um, Spanish Peaks, um, you know, Adams Mountain, Snake River Sporting Club, you mentioned uh, Seven Canyons, you know, the, some of the other desert courses, the Hawaiian courses. I mean, it's just an astounding lineup of these beautiful, aesthetically gorgeous 
panoramic properties. I mean, you, you must feel just extraordinarily lucky to be able to work in those environments when so many other people in the field are, are limited or they're, they, you know, during the nineties and, and early two thousands, they were uh, conflicted with housing developments or they just didn't have the, you know, the, that type of canvas to work on. I mean, what a, what a, what a gift that uh, Tom was able to bring to you in your professional life, just for that reason alone, these environments that you get to work in. No doubt. And, you know, people used to ask me all the time, you know, like five years into working with Weisskopf, they're like, why don't you break off and do your own thing? And I'm like, guys, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to be able to work on sites like this. And um, I'm so glad I stuck with them, you know, throughout my career um, because of that, you know, this unique opportunity to work on projects like that. I have to tell you, I mean, we did have a few where, you know, it's housing developments sure. and, and like you were describing, but I have to tell you, there were a few projects where I felt a little bit guilty putting a golf course in that environment. You know, Seven Canyons comes to mind yeah. where you're completely surrounded by state land and, and just these beautiful, you know, red rock canyons and buttes. And it's just off the tar- charts, gorgeous. But that, that feeling of, of guilt goes away quickly when you realize and you suddenly realize we're giving a people an opportunity to enjoy this area, you know, to be able to immerse themselves in these areas, just like uh, I think black desert, the new one we're doing that we're just finishing up in uh, St. George is another great example of that, where we're able to inject people into these sites and to be able to, to enjoy them. And so um, that goes a long way in sort of quelling those, those feelings of guilt. <laughs> How often did you or how to what degree did you and Tom look at or were you aware of of what else has, was out there over the last 20 years? What your what your peers were building, what kind of sites they were getting, how they approached it. I know you get you can easily get locked into what you're doing. You know, I'm sure Tom's on a plane constantly, you know, selling, meeting new clients, doing all the the, the events that he had to do. You're locked in with your with several projects that are going on at the same time. Did, did you have time or even the desire to go out and see what else was being done? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We always like to, you know, see what's happening. And of course, you want to see what your peers are up to. And, you know, there's there's so much talent out there right now. You know, um, guys, they're just doing amazing work. And, uh, you know, you just want to make sure that you're included with that group, you know, as far as being in the conversation. And so um, but at the same time, you still want to stand hold with your principles and what you're doing and, and, you know, be confident in what, what you're providing, you know, your clients. And at the end of the day, that's, what's important is that what you're giving your client, you know, at the time uh, to produce the best possible project. So, you know, Tom, you know, we, you know, I think we might've played a couple of courses. Uh, I was trying to think uh, maybe we played a Fazio course and, you know, we always had a lot of respect for Ben and Bill, um, and their work. And, and of course, some of the newer guys that are coming out like Gil Hans and, and, um, you know, Tom Doak and those guys. So it's, you know, it's, it's a great sort of, um, group of guys that are, that are doing this and it's fun to be a part of that group. Going back to the, the, the wise cop bunker and the look and the, the importance of its aesthetics, which, I mean, I, I do think that is why, clients continue to be attracted to your product and golfers I'm, I'm, I'm sure enjoy playing the golf courses it, it is a little different than the aesthetic that's taken over golf over the last 20 years where you know as the the industry or the preferred look or uh and a lot of it's site driven it's gone to this more of this 
this look that that is more rugged. The golf these the designers attempt to create a course that looks like it's been there for decades, if not a hundred years. That's that's their goal is to make a golf course that looks old. And yet, on the other side of the spectrum is the Weisskopf model, as Ron Witten said, timeless and clean and crisp, which is a, a, a different presentation. For one, I, I love the variety. I think golf golf is richer when you have that that different examples of golf. Mm-hmm. But was there, and you mentioned it before that you kind of wanted to get in at the end. Tom wanted to get into a little bit more of a of a bu- different style of bunker look. Did you ever feel locked into the to that aesthetic look that you were building, or that your clients kept wanting to be repeated? Not really. I mean, we did some things. Um, if you look at what we did in China at uh, the dunes at Shenzhen Peninsula, that's a very naturalistic feeling golf course. It's right in the dunes of. You know, it used to be flat watermelon fields. And if you look at that golf course now, it's 36 holes. And we did a composite course within the 36 holes of 18 of the best holes there. We did a very organic bunker style there. We did it at Snake River. We did it at CDA National, which is in Idaho. Right. Uh, we, we did it um, at Black Bull, which is in Bozeman, Montana. So, you know, there were times where the sites lent itself toward that sort of more naturalistic bunker style and, Tom really liked it. He didn't want to get too crazy with the lines. I think we did in China. We got a little bit too crazy, but over time it sort of mellows out, you know, but um, yeah, I, I love doing that style and, you know, I'll do some like that in the future. I know um, we've been working on a project in St. Andrews since 2005 that keeps going through different ownerships and it might be coming back to life. So I know that that golf course will definitely have a more sort of European feel Hmm. we want to do. What we wanted to do there, there, there's two designs that are still kind of in the can that I have all of Tom's input on. And one of those is St. Andrews. And the other one is in uh, Boise, near Boise, Idaho, mm. that um, hopefully will move forward and still have the Weisskopf brand or Weisskopf Smith brand on it. And so I'm hoping that those still will come through and, and happen. So yeah. it'll be kind of cool. What's the St. Andrews project? Is that a, a new course in the area or a redeveloped it is. It's piece up, of land? It's up. It's just outside of town near the Duke's course, um, but it's it's on a piece of property that just has a nice three to five percent slope, and it looks out over St. Andrews. So our first hole plays right to the church steeple, and on good clear days, you can see you know the horizon of the ocean down below. But twelve holes of it were shaped, and then they they had to shut down because of the ownership issues. But um, we're hoping to get that one revitalized and get it moving again. So that'd be really cool to finish that one for Tom. Oh, absolutely. To be able to build in St. Andrews. That's a, every designer's dream. I mean, it doesn't, right. <laughs> it doesn't get more holy than that. That's right. You're talking about the, we were talking about the routing and you were saying, um, you know, you and Tom would co- collaborate on it and spend time figuring out it, but, and you had certain like, you know, a check thing, checklist or checklist may not, not, might not be the right way to put that, but you, you had certain, certain concepts that you wanted to, to incorporate the opposite running long par fours and the drivable par four. That's something that, that, you know, Weisskopf will always be known for reintroducing to modern golf. Was that difficult to always feel like you had to incorporate that into a design or maybe get two in and find out how you're going to work those? I mean, and, and then I would, I'd love to get your perspective on just designing the short par four because in concept it's easy, but I think to make a really good drivable par four is, is the opposite of easy. 
It's, it is challenging. Um, they're not hard to fit in. I mean, it's very easy. And like I was mentioning earlier, you know, trying to design some holes that are what we consider to be half pars, you know, maybe it's a, it's a par three and a half or it's a par four and a half, you know, where they're reachable fours and reachable fives are what our bread and butter was. And so Tom sort of looked at reachable par fours as almost like two connecting par threes so that, You've got to give somebody a place to lay up that's fair. You've got to give them a challenge to have a reward, uh, a heroic reward. And so that was sort of his concept. If you think about the 17th hole at TPC Scottsdale, I think it creates some of the best drama in golf, you know, where, you know, you just miss it a little bit left and you're in the, the lake, the finger of the lake that comes up at the green and the green sort of breaks that way, you know, pretty hard off that left corner. If you bail out too far right, you've got to come over a big ridge and then you're 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 hitting back toward the water and the ball's gonna chase that way. So it all comes down to really thinking through the entire process of the golf hole. And that's what Tom instilled in me, and that's what he did. He looked at every angle and every aspect of these holes to see how each shot would be played, you know, depending on how you would, you know, approach that that shot. So there was a lot of thought that went into him and he really pride, he put a lot of pride in doing those. And, and I think it's a great sort of um, signature tool that he had in his, in his quiver of, of tools at his disposal. It was something that, you know, I'll continue to do and carry on that legacy. I, I it's, I think they're, they're just a lot of fun for every, every level of player to be able to play those holes. Do you have a specific memory that you go back to of your time with Tom or a, a moment that you two had or um, a, a design breakthrough or something that, that stands out to you? It wasn't a design breakthrough, but it's it's one of the funniest things ever. You know, we had gotten a lot of opportunities to work in China, and Tom just didn't want to travel that far and do anything. So we finally got a chance to go there. And I kept, because since I had lived in Hong Kong, I told him, you know, we, we've got to give this a shot. So we finally um, got this opportunity at the dunes and we, we got there and he was pretty reluctant, you know, to, to start with before we got to the site and we got up that morning and, and uh, went to breakfast. And as we were walking into breakfast at this little hotel, which was kind of out in the middle of nowhere, there was a sign in Chinese characters and then it had the translation underneath it that said, today's special dog in a hot pot. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure it was supposed to say duck, but it didn't. It said dog. <laughs> and he turned around. I, I had to grab him by the back of his shirt. He was ready to run away from this place and get back on the plane and head back home. And luckily, I made him stay, and we had French fries and noodles for breakfast. And you know, the rest is history. We, we had the most fun on that project, you know, as it, as I look back on it, I'm so glad that he decided to go over there and, and, you know, stick it out. But we had so much fun, you know, traveling together. Like I say, he, he and I became such good friends and, and it was just so, he was so easy to travel with. He wasn't one of these prima donna guys that had to, you know, you know, he loved travel. He, he, he loved interacting with people. He was the perfect, well, I always like to say he was the perfect kind of famous. He wasn't, you know, so famous like Jack where, you know, Jack was like Michael Jackson. When he walked down the street, everybody just mobbed him. And 
Tom, we could go have lunch together in Scottsdale, Arizona, and maybe one person would come up or maybe nobody would, you know? So, and he was always very gracious when somebody did. So, um, I wouldn't mind being rich, but I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to be super famous. So I thought, I think Tom, you know, was just the right, just the right mix of the, of the two. So it worked out well for him. When you were spending time with him, uh, off the golf course, would you be talking about design or, or would you, would your conversations go into other things? What was he interested in and what was he like uh, away from golf? Oh, he was very interested in, of course, hunting, you know, he loved to hunt. I wasn't a big hunter, but I still enjoyed listening to his stories and he was very interested in politics. Um, and you know, we had lots of long conversations about that, but he was, you know, just a very good conversationalist. Um, so we never had, you know, times where there were any awkward silences, except when we were asleep, which there was, you know, plenty of times on planes when we could fall asleep. But, um, yeah, just, we talked about everything. We had lots of great conversations. We had, you know, another great story was we were flying to Argentina for a project that we had down there. And, and, uh, we had to connect through Lima, Peru, and there was a volcanic eruption that happened in Chile which clouded the skies. And so we got stuck in Lima for three, three full days. And this was back in like 2012. And um, luckily I had my plans for TPC Scottsdale. We were getting ready to do a major renovation there. And so we spent those three days just hunkered down in a hotel in Lima, Peru and, and uh, came up with all the ideas for the big renovation of TPC Scottsdale. So it was times like that, that to me were just invaluable, you know, where, it was just he and I one-on-one -on -one and, you know, we were stuck somewhere, but we had something to do and we had, you know, those plans and were able to just bang out, you know, some pretty cool stuff. So that was a lot of fun. Did he share stories or thoughts about his playing days? You know, his, his career is, you know, he won a major, he won the British Open uh, or the Open Championship, um, but he also had some near misses. And um, I think a lot of people, you know, his, his legacy is kind of one of the, the greatest talents that but you know maybe didn't live up his record didn't live up to to the expectations or his talents uh, did he share thoughts with you about his playing career he did you know of course his biggest regret was the masters you know he had you know jim nance did a great documentary i don't know if you saw it this year um the hour before the mass the final round we uh jim put together a uh, documentary on Tom's life, but it really focused on his play at the masters and, you know, his second place finishes and how close he came to winning the masters. And, and that's the one, I think that's the one that probably haunted him the most, you know, just the fact that we would have, you know, he would have been invited back every year for the dinners. And, you know, I think he really missed not being part of that, uh, that group, you know, and that, that stung, that was hard. I think his, um, you know, just sort of the perception of the the Tom Weisskopf and Jack Nicholas rivalry and the fact that Jack really got in his head. You know, Tom's greatest quote to me when I was interviewing with him was like, he told me, he said, look, Jack beat me in my first career and we're going to beat him in our second career, which I thought was, a <laughs> you know, just a great line. And so I'd like to think it was a tie, but <laughs> but um he always had Jack in the back of his head, right? You know, even in our design careers, you know, it was always, 
you know what, we just got this project injected and, you know, or whatever, you know, it was just always kind of that rivalry, which, um, you know, just never would go away. <laughs> he had one of the great announcement calls during the 86 masters, you know what I'm talking about, you know, oh, yeah. Nance, or it was, I don't think it was Nance. Some, one of the other announcers asked, it was, like, Nance. was it Nance? Nance it was, was on Nance, 16. Yeah. yeah. So he says, you know, Tom, what's Jack thinking right here over the tee shot on 16? And he says, he says, if I knew it was in this man's head, I would have won, would have won this tournament, <laughs> <laughs> which kind of sums it up. You know, that's Tom had such a brilliant career. He's such a brilliant golfer. And yet, to actually win a golf tournament and to win majors is just, it, it takes some other sort of superhuman level, especially to do it with any consistency like Nicholas did. It's just not, it, it's extra human to be able to do that. So who could relate? Yeah, exactly. And if you've ever been down downstream of those steely blue eyes of Jack Nicholas, you would understand how difficult it would be to beat that man. Yeah. Right. You know, like, we said earlier, golf's a tough game, but if you're not feeling comfortable and you're not feeling comfortable, you know, in your setup and, and play, and Jack could just make you feel that way, <laughs> really uncomfortable. So. Yes, without saying it, yes. Yeah, yeah, just the mind game. To that note, though, you know, he, Tom telling you, I want to be Jack in the second part of my career, do you feel that, that your work has gotten the respect that it deserves? I don't know. I think it's all subjective, as you know. I mean you have a nice set of panelists and, and groups that go out there and, and, you know, things have changed a lot. Um, you think about the rankings and sort of how things have hashed out over the last decade or 15 years, you know, think about desert golf. There used to be a lot of desert golf courses in the top 100. And if you look now, I think maybe Estancia, I don't know if desert Highlands is still in there, but uh, there's just not a lot of that. So, it's just sort of the way styles and, and, and people's, you know, perception and what they like and what they, you know, the Raiders and how they rate things. It's always kind of a big mystery, but, you know, we try to appeal first and foremost to the user and then the rest kind of follows along. And so, um, you know, that's, that's just sort of the subjective part of it, which is impossible to put a value on. How do you, you know, how do you sort of design to that? And if you do, I think you're going to get yourself in trouble. So try not to think too much about that. Yeah. There's a difference between be, ha, designing a successful golf course because, and it's successful because the user enjoys it. The client enjoys it. It's, it's economically viable. And then there's success that everybody else who's not playing the golf course <laughs> thinks it's a great right. golf course, you know, it, and, and it, right. it, to me, it's always been the difference between, you know, you, you, you can build a, a really great uh, car that that's, that's fuel efficient and comfortable and, and maybe a little luxurious. And then there's building a race car, which is like com right. uh, built for something else. And so sometimes they, they mesh together and you get the whole package, but they're, they're often just, you know, you're talking about two different criteria, two different sets of expectations. Yeah. And I, you know, and this maybe segues into something that, you know, I, I don't, I couldn't think of a better project for Tom and I to end our career on the desert project. I think, um, and I think your Raiders are maybe coming out in September. Yep. Black gonna, desert I in think Utah. I'm planning on, I'm going to go talk to them. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad go you did, I'm glad you did this because I wanted, I wanted to spend some time on black desert. So. Oh, okay. Great. Um, yeah. So the site is a perfect combination of Sedona, Arizona and Kona, Hawaii. It's the black a -a lava and then the red rock, 
mountains in the backdrop and it's 360 degree views of mountains and and just an unbelievable piece of property we looked at that project and if you can imagine a 76 year old tom weisskopf when we started that this was before he had gotten sick or had his um, diagnosis we walked every square inch of that site twice um you know and, and tom walked every piece of it with me and we lost him a couple times he fell down in the, in the lava a couple of times and we sort of fished him out it's and, gotta be painful that know, stuff will he was you. beaten and bloodied and, yeah. and everything else but he kept on going and so um i was able to get really good input from tom before he got sick and so uh, we were able to get the holes routed we were able to get all the strategy and everything and then once we started construction that's when things got pretty intense for him with his chemo uh, treatments and and so he was only really able to come to the site a couple of times during construction, but that was the most difficult project as far as technically for me that I'd ever worked on in my career, even more difficult than Kona, because like I was saying earlier with the GPS technology on the equipment and all of these different components, I needed to make sure the plans were perfect so that we didn't accidentally bust off a piece of lava or get into an area that we didn't intend to. So. I had to walk every hole five or six times, redraw plans, redraw, you know, five or six times. It was, so it was, if it was a math class or a college course, it would have been very similar to having a, you know, a, a calculus differential equation and trigonometry class all wrapped up into an art class. So it was, it took a lot of detail and a lot of precise drawings to get everything just right. So um, we blasted every square inch of that property uh, in order to get the golf course to sit in that lava. And then we filled, you know, it was three feet of blasting over excavation so that we could fill the rest with a sand layer so we could get that beautiful movement throughout that golf course. And you can kind of see it behind me. This is a, a, a photo of the 13th hole and sort of what you see in the background. But what we came up with there was to be able to play not only on top of the lava, but kind of down through it and then amongst it. So we tried to use lava as strategy in, in a lot of cases and then tried to use other, you know, with the, it's a great contrast of the green grass, the white sand, the black rock and the red rocks yeah. in the background. So it's, it's off the charts. Cool. It's just a great place to, you know, be able to say it was our last project together. Yeah, it's a, it's a, and I haven't been there yet, but just looking at aerials and photographs, it's, it's a, it's a, it's obviously unique and it's obviously breathtaking. But you've also the way you, as you mentioned, the way you incorporate the lava into the strategies. You have, you have some of these longer holes with these kind of pinch points where you use the lava to kind of shrink it down, and and some you use some outcroppings to various effects. Um, there's a little bit of a kind of a Jim Ang uh, feeling to it, where just the way that the sinewy, almost centipede like like formations of the fairways, um, but and then just just the 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 technical uh, aspect of having to get that that course in there, as you as you've said, is just must have been like a great experience. I mean, hard, I'm sure difficult, probably expensive, but to be able to engineer that golf course into that setting uh, must be very rewarding. It's, it's extremely rewarding, especially when you see it, when they blast that lava, it expands, you know, it, it's, it's one size below ground. And then once you blow it up, it's, it expands by four X. So you've got to get all that rock out of there and see what's left, you know, and what's exposed and what remains. And so it, it was quite the challenge. But the experience of that golf course, I think, is going to be very unique because not only playing the golf course is cool, but just the experience of traveling from hole to hole 
is something we thought about and the golf cart sort of circumventing some of these lava features is going to be a great experience for the player and being a resort course, you know, and having people sort of, you know, all day long, having it be the first time they've played it, you know, we had to keep that in mind with the design. Um, I kept the greens pretty mellow there because the wind can really blow. We had some days where it was 40, 50 mile an hour winds, but that's not the norm, but, um, it's also a golf course, which, like I said earlier, can can hold it hold up to the best players in the world. We recently were just awarded a PGA Tour event, which will be held. It's will be the Black Desert. Black Desert will be the the sponsor, and it's part of the uh, FedEx Cup. So that'll start in fall of 2024, and then uh, LPGA is also going to have an event there in the spring. So I think it's one of only three courses in the world that will have be a venue for both the LPGA and the, and the PGA tour. So that's pretty exciting stuff too. I can't wait to see it on TV and how it shows on television. I'm sure it'll do just fine. <laughs> now, <laughs> now looking at the routing, did I see uh, a par three? Is it the third hole with a bunker in the middle of the green? Oh yeah. That was, um, that was an old quarry. Actually that, that part of the site and Tom, you know, that hole evolved into several different, um, scenarios. And finally, um, it was actually one of Tom, it was Tom's last visit there. And, and we were trying to decide what to do. We were thinking some waterfalls and some different things. And, and he's like, no, let's just keep it. You know, let's do something really, really um, cool here that I saw at Riviera, you know, the sixth hole at Riviera. And he's like, let's do the bunker in the middle of the green. So um, that was just one of those little things that he wanted to incorporate from something that he had played in the past. And so it's a really cool feature and, and it turned out great. It's one of the bigger greens on the golf course and it just sits down in this beautiful little quarry area. Just like it, it's not the easiest thing to build a good drivable par four. I mean, to me, a good drivable par four is the layup can't just be a, a no brainer. You know, it, layup can't just result in a very short, simple shot to the green. You know, there has right. to be set up. So that shot's challenging and so it tempts you into taking a longer club to hit it. Is there a trick to designing a, a par three with a bunker in the middle of the green? It's not, hasn't been done that often. And I'm assuming there's, you know, Riviera is the, the model for it, but there are very few other examples and, and maybe no other examples of a hole with a bunker in the green that's considered a great hole. Well, the, the trick to the bunker in the center of a green is, making sure that no matter where you are in the green, you can access the pin. So if you hit the ball on the far lower right corner and the pin is far upper left and the bunkers between you and the pin, we create contours so that you can put up and around the top and access that pin so that you're not having people chip off the green. So that is the biggest challenge to make sure that you can always access the pin from anywhere on the, on that greens, which means there's going to be a lot of pitch and slope in the back section of those greens. So you have a big flash of, of, of turf and green up in the top so that you can putt up and off those slopes. Mm -hmm. So that's the first and foremost thing. The other is just, you know, don't make it gimmicky, you know, make it look like it fits and make it look like it, you know, there's a reason why we did that. And that's with any golf hole. We want to make it look like all we did was clear the land and, and grass it. You know, we don't want it to look like we moved dirt. So that's, that's the other challenge to it. As we started off this conversation, mentioning that it's been a little over a year since Tom passed away, I'm sure Black Desert would, would factor into this answer. But to your knowledge or your impression, were there certain, and we spoke about the um, 
you know, beautiful places that you've had a chance to work. Are there certain projects or certain sites that, that meant more to Tom that you're aware of than others? And, and, and again, I, I'm, I, I hate these questions to say, well, you know, what's your favorite course or blah, blah, blah. But just on a personal level, were there certain places that, that meant more to him? There's no doubt. Lock Lomond, I think, probably held a really special place in his heart because he, when they did Lock Lomond, and I wasn't part of Lock Lomond, that was um, before my time. He moved there. He lived there. He was there every day. And so he is sort of woven into the fabric of that golf course. And he's so proud of that place. And, um, and you can see why when you go there, uh, if you've ever had a chance to, to go there, it's just a, just a beautiful, beautiful place that really lent itself to parkland golf. You know, it did not lend itself to have a link style golf course. And so it was the perfect palette for Tom to do his thing in Scotland. And, um, that's why I'm so excited to hopefully get to do St. Andrews because yeah. then it would give us two really cool, different style of golf courses. But there's no doubt Loch Lomond, you know, was, and, and of course, Troon Country Club here in Scottsdale, which was his first. And, you know, he won best new course right out of the gate with his very first design. I mean, who does that? You know, so that's, that tells you a little something about his talent and, and what he had coming out of the gate. So I think between those two, and it's almost ironic that, um, you know, I was with Tom when he got his diagnosis, um, when he found out that he was sick. And and uh, we were just coming back from La Quinta looking at a project over there called the Reserve Club. We're going to do some work over there. And we were driving back to Scottsdale to do another grand opening at Troon Country Club, which we had just renovated. And as we drove back from um, – La Quinta, we were on I-10 and I could just tell Tom wasn't comfortable in the car and just not feeling very well. And the next two days he did two full nine hole walkthroughs with the members, nine holes each day. And again, I could tell he just wasn't feeling well. And that was when he went to the hospital and found out that, that he was sick. But it was just ironic that Troon was sort of where he was when he started and Troon Country Club was sort of where he was when he, when he found out that he was, was, sick mm -hmm. so but you know that just shows you the commitment of the man that he he powered through those two days of walking through with the members yeah and wasn't going to stop on that on a similar note can, thinking about the courses that that you and tom designed uh together in your tenure there if you could send the uninitiated or somebody that's never played one of your courses before to any of those that that you've built that you feel encapsulate everything that's important to you and, and that, that you are trying to achieve and that, that expresses that best, where would one or two or three of those places be that, that best encapsulate what your vision with, with Tom's? I, you know, I would send them to um, the snake river sporting club is near and dear to my heart. It's right along the snake river those are probably the best set of greens that we've ever designed together. Um, it's a beautiful piece of property and just a gorgeous setting. And, you know, I think we were able to accomplish everything that we wanted to on that golf course. It, it's seen a few difficult times as far as different ownerships and different things that have had to go through it. You know, of course it opened right when the financial crisis hit in the early, you know, the mid two thousands. So there's that one. I think, um, 
you know, if you want to experience, um, so that's sort of a mountain golf course. If you want to experience, you know, what we did in Hawaii, I think Kukuyula is spectacular and, and Kiolu, which is at Hualalai. Those are two great golf courses that um, I think everybody would enjoy. And, and of course, Seven Canyons, you know, here in Arizona, the one, and Black Desert. You know, I think of all of those, those would give you a really good um, variety of designs and, and, and feel. What made the greens at, at Snake River turn out so well? Was something, were you uh, trying for something different there? Just, yeah, I, that was sort of a transition time when I was sort of being a little more aggressive. Um, I had been with Tom at that point for about six years. And so um, Tom was getting more confident in what I did. And, and we were able to sort of, extend more out of our box, you know, with design. And so that's when I started incorporating a little bit more movement, a little bit more outside in on the greens complexes. Um, and, you know, really just trying to get those greens to flow and move and, and just do all kinds of things and other things that we do that would sort of trick your eye where you feel like something might be pitching this way and it's actually going just the opposite where we try to incorporate that in on purpose in order to try to trick your eye a little bit and, and make them a little bit tougher to read. Mm -hmm. Tom always, you know, he always used the quote, um, he wants his greens perfectly imperfect. In other words, when we do that final float, let's leave a little bump here and let's leave a little, you know, thing here to kind of, you know, just kind of trick your eye as you're, you know, lining up certain putts so that there's a lot of times when they're on the sand pro and they're, they're, slicking these greens off they almost get them too perfect you know so it's there's a fine balance in there somewhere going back to something we spoke about earlier and, and we'll wrap this up here in a moment going back to this other concept of the the difference between a, a, a professional golfer's eye and an architect's eye did were there any um residual hangovers in tom's outlook about putting greens and putting contours you know, obviously he loved Augusta National with these extreme contours, but but nobody would want to have to play those on a week-to-week -week basis if you're playing for money. Uh, so uh, so most professional golfers would prefer really fast greens. They're fine with fast greens, but but the combination of either a lot of contour and fast greens is not ideal. They'd prefer them a little more level so they can dial in their pace and break. Or and what they really wouldn't want are really contoured greens that are slow. So right. did, did he have, what did his professional mentality carry over into green designs? Did he ever say like, you know, this is too much, Phil, like we've got to calm these down uh, versus where you might've wanted to, to, as you said, with snake river, push it a little bit farther and kind of create some more in interesting internal contours. Yeah. I think, you know, he, we, all of us as architects kind of have to design with one arm tied behind our backs these days because of green speeds um, and it's too bad, you know, some of those old courses, which are now starting to become obsolete because of, you know, green speeds, you know, it's amazing when you do go to Augusta and you do see the movement in those greens and you're just like, as an architect, you're like, man, I wish we could still do that, but you just can't, you know? Um, so yeah, there's a fine balance in there somewhere. And I mean, we, we would try to push the envelope, but we also, again, back to that comment, he said, he just doesn't want to be controversial. And so we still kept our pinnable areas below 3%, which is sort of that, that at 3%, the ball can keep rolling if you're not careful. So that's, that's sort of that, 
we never really changed that spec in, in our minds of what we could produce in, in pinnable areas. But we, in saying that, most of them were in the 1% to 2% range in those pinnable areas. What's the best modern golf course that you've played or that you know of that you were not involved or Tom was not involved <laughs> in building? <laughs> best modern golf course? Yeah. So the greatest thing about being a golf course architect, or the, actually the worst thing is it's a, it's a great way to quit the game. <laughs> right. <laughs> I yeah. don't play golf that often. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I, I haven't been to Bandon Dunes yet. I would love to get out there. I think, you know, as far as seeing what I've seen, I would, I think some of those golf courses would be right up there, but I haven't actually gotten to play them yet. It's hard to get around to different courses, I know. <laughs> yeah, and I would love to get up to Mullen, Nebraska. I, you know, like I said earlier, I love Crenshaw's work and, and Bill Coor. It's just great guys, and so I'd love to get up and, and you know play the Sand Hills just because of my background with Prairie Dunes. But I, I would have to say, you know, what they've done up there is is pretty cool. So I'd love to go see that too. If you were going to make a recommendation for somebody to come and play in Scottsdale, what jumps to mind? You could say the Troon courses, of course, but what else? What else would you recommend? Um, I mean, I've done so many here. You know, I've done. I've been involved with seventeen courses just north of Frank Lloyd Wright Boulevard. Wow. So there's so much good golf here. There's two hundred and forty some golf courses in the Phoenix metro area. I just redid the Phoenician five years ago, and and uh, you know, it's. I would say if you're first time into the valley try to inject yourself up into North Scottsdale because that's where the real high Sonoran desert is. It's the most lush desert in the world. And so it's, it's such a unique place. So yeah, of course, true North, you know, or, or true country club, or, you know, if you want to play where the tour players play, come play TPC Scottsdale, but Silverleaf is spectacular. You know, that's a private club that we did up, up in the foothills of the McDowell mountains here. Um, and then the Desert Mountain courses, which I, you know, did those with Jack. You know, it's, I, I just think that's some of the most unique golf in the world. And I hope that every golfer would get to experience at least one of those courses. Phil Smith alluded to the longstanding rivalry, or maybe better put, the competition of convenience, Weisskopf felt with Jack Nicholas, both Ohio State graduates who dueled repeatedly on the PGA Tour. Smith recalled that when Weisskopf first called him, he said that Nicholas may have bested him in their first careers, but he wanted to beat him in his second. Depending on what kind of metric you use, he may have done it. If you just look at the America's 100 greatest and second 100 greatest courses, it's Nicholas in a TKO with 14 designs or co-designs, though the majority come in the last half of the list. Compare that to just two for Weisskopf, Double Eagle in Ohio and Forest Highlands in Arizona, with Forest Dunes in Michigan barely falling out this year. But if you look at total production, you see that Weisskopf hits at a much higher percentage. While Nicholas was putting his name on dozens of courses a year worldwide, Weisskopf was taking his time and investing himself more so into each one. His portfolio was much smaller, and I'd argue consistently richer in settings and pure golf experience. Consider Seven Canyons, the desert course at Cabo del Sol, Snake River Sporting Club, the Yellowstone Club, Spanish Peaks, Cucuyula, the Ocean Club in the Bahamas, and Black Desert. Those are just some of the ones he built with Smith. Add on Troon and Troon North, Lahontan, TPC Scottsdale, Harbor Club, The Rim, as well as Forest Dunes, Double Eagle, and Forest Highlands that he did with Jay Morish, 
and those are also just a few, and Weisskopf begins to rest his case. I do have to kid Phil just a little when he said that he and Tom enjoyed the work of the young guys, Gil Hans and Tom Doak, two designers in their 60s. They'd be thrilled to take on that moniker, I'm sure. It's all in good fun, but it does tend to highlight two things about golf course architecture. One, the time flies fast, and two, that careers tend to break late in this profession, skewering the concept of young. I sincerely thank Phil Smith for sitting down with me and sharing his views on design and his relationship with Tom Weisskopf. Please subscribe to Feed the Ball wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review to let me know that you're there and if you're enjoying the episodes. Check out all the great past episodes at feedtheball.com or on any other podcast server. And please consider washing your clothes in cold water. It's a simple, easy, and effective thing we could all do that's great for your energy bill and softens our impact on resources and the environment. What's there to lose? That's all for now. Thanks again to Phil Smith. Thanks to you all for listening. Thanks, as always, to the Sundogs for the bridge music. And until we get to do this again, adios.